Land, Water, Wildlife, a podcast produced by the Sanibel Captiva Conservation Foundation, connecting you to nature. Hi, thanks for listening to this episode of Land, Water, Wildlife, which will focus on Everglades restoration and water quality, two relevant topics following the end of Florida's legislative session and fresh into hurricane season. I'm Denise Blau, Communications and Marketing Manager for the Sanibel Captiva Conservation Foundation, better known as SCCF. Since 1967, SCCF has been safeguarding shorebirds and sea turtles, preserving land, restoring habitat, monitoring water quality, and advocating for our environment here in Southwest Florida. I'm joined today by two of my colleagues in our Environmental Policy Department. Matt DePaulis, the department's director, and Katie Gretter, who recently joined us as an intern. Would you each want to give us a quick background on yourself and what you do here at SCCF? Thanks, Denise. I'm the environmental policy director here at SCCF. I work in the nexus of science and policy, trying to translate some of the great work that our partners and our marine lab is doing into advocacy efforts in Tallahassee and beyond. It's great to be back here in Southwest Florida. Um, I left for a little bit to go get my master's in marine biology and my JD out in Oregon, came back to Florida to pursue a fellowship at University of Florida, and then made my way back down south. Thanks for having us, Denise. I'm Katie Gretter, and I've been working with Matt, among other projects here at SCCF, on the Take Action campaigns against legislative bills that work contrary to our conservation goals. And I'm going into my third year at the University of St. Andrews in Scotland, where I'm pursuing a bachelor's degree in international relations. Awesome. So great to have both of you here as experts today for our conversation on restoring the Everglades and how water quality comes into play. Before diving in, I just want to give our audience just a quick overview of the Everglades. Um, They may already be familiar with it, but it's just good to refresh everyone that this is a 1.5 million acre wetlands preserve stretching over South Florida and it hosts lush biodiversity including 39 threatened and endangered species including the Florida panther and West Indian manatee. But the Everglades aren't the way they used to be. Matt, can you tell us a bit about how that ecosystem used to function and what has happened to change it? Absolutely. The Everglades is such an incredible system because there are no other places in the world that are exactly like the South Florida Everglades. We're talking about a system that stretches from the southern end of Lake Okeechobee all the way to Florida Bay and functions in its historic range as a slow-moving river that's 60 miles wide and 100 miles long, moving at about half a mile a day. So it can take months for water that leaves Lake Okeechobee to reach Um, Florida Bay and throughout that time that water is being cleaned nutrients are being carried around through the ecosystem and it's supporting this really intricate um, food web and various trophic levels all throughout this ecosystem from the lake edge to sawgrass prairies down into the seagrass meadows beyond and they're all interconnected in this really complex living system that um, functioned over thousands and thousands of years basically until humans came to the Everglades and saw it as an opportunity for development. And that's really the story all over Florida, but nowhere is it more pronounced than in the Everglades itself. 
When we're talking about the Everglades today, we're usually thinking about the National Park that's right at the southern tip of Florida. But that historic range stretched much further beyond that. Um, but when people came and saw the Everglades, they saw a huge mass of land that was unusable, unusable, unproductive, and really they saw an opportunity to get the water off the land and turn that into agriculture. So this all started when Hamilton Diston came down in the late 1800s. Uh, he was a businessman from Philadelphia came down here and decided that he was going to drain, ditch, and dredge the Everglades, get the water off the land, and turn that area into agriculture. So the state of Florida sold him 4 million acres as, at 25 cents an acre, an area larger than the size of Connecticut, the single largest land purchased by any human, and with the additional promise that he was going to drain 12 million additional acres and be able to use all that land for agriculture. He was, he was optimistic in how easy it was going to be to drain the land. He did not achieve his goal, but through a series of draining and ditching projects after Hamilton, there was a pretty effective uh, project to drain the Everglades, resulting in the Everglades agriculture area as we know it today. Now, as agriculture was booming in this area, so too were small towns popping up. People began moving into this area that used to be a historic floodplain with that sheet flow that would come off the southern base of Lake Okeechobee. Um, once people started living here, they ran into issues, especially around the 1920s. In 1926 and 1928, two hurricanes hit Lake Okeechobee and the wall of water that overtopped the southern bank more violently than anyone who lived there had ever seen before ended up killing about 2,500 people. And it was at that moment that the Army Corps stepped in and said that this is unacceptable and they were going to control the lake for flood protection. To do this, they started building the Herbert Hoover Dyke, which is a huge water control structure that today stretches all the way around Lake Okeechobee and has turned Lake Okeechobee essentially into a functioning reservoir with outlets that go to the northern estuaries, to the agriculture area, and to the Everglades itself. And it's the Army Corps and the Water Management District that decide how much water is going, which direction, and when it goes to those places. Um, so this is the system we're left with today, where we have the lake that serves as a giant reservoir, we have a lot of agriculture south of the lake that has um, the ear of the Army Corps and the Water District and wants to be able to take water when they want it and won't take water when they don't want it. We have the Everglades that desperately needs water, but due to the pollution in the lake right now, that's generally nutrient pollution, which is nitrogen and phosphorus, uh, we're not legally able to put water into the Everglades because it doesn't meet the 10 parts per billion phosphorus limit that is necessary before we can return water to the Everglades. That means that the only release valves for this lake that is being managed for flood control are the northern estuaries. So what ends up happening is we in the northern estuaries, that's the Caloosahatchee and the St. Lucie estuary, end up getting huge damaging flows when there is a need to discharge water from the lake. Um, and that has a really huge effect on the health of our estuaries. That can influence the amount of blue-green algae that we see in our systems, and that can have an exacerbating effect on red tide in our systems. 
So when we're talking about the Everglades today, it's really important to understand that it is a larger system than just the national park, and it does affect everyone in South Florida, from the northern estuaries who are trying to deal with harmful algal blooms, to the people of Miami who require, who rely on the Everglades for clean water for their drinking water supply. Yeah, thanks so much for that history, Matt. And uh, just to paint a picture here for our uh, listeners, so Lake Okeechobee kind of sits in the middle of Florida and, um, you know, over time humans have really taken control of that and um, it it wasn't historically connected to these um, estuaries on the west and the east. Is that correct? So we made those channels? That's a great point, Denise. Yes. So the St. Lucie has historically been completely separate. They're still could be separate. They're still spring fed. And that's why they really don't want any water coming into the lake. The Caloosahatchee is in a little bit of a more nuanced position. Historically, it was never connected directly to the lake. There was a string of smaller lakes and wetlands and a couple old ditches that were dug by the indigenous people to get their canoes um, into the Lake Okeechobee to go hunting in um, some of the different seasons. However, there was never actually an open flowing water source. This all changed again when some of those ditching and draining projects started. There was actually a waterfall on in the Caloosahatchee that provided an area to stage the water and meter out water that was going down the Caloosahatchee. That was dynamited and there were connections that were ditched and dredged out from the Caloosahatchee to Okeechobee. So today we do rely on some amount of water from Okeechobee to protect the salinity gradient in our estuary. Um, but it's all a very controlled system and it looks much different than it did historically. Yeah, yeah, thank you for clarifying that. Just another story of humans coming in and and really changing the way ecosystems work, especially wetlands. We see that all across the U.S. Um, so moving on, what exactly um, does Everglades restoration entail? We kind of hear that term um, thrown around a lot, but what does that mean? Everglades restoration is such an interesting project because it's one of the largest restoration efforts that's going on anywhere in the world at any point in time. It is this massive, massive undertaking. And it's also one of the few issues in our present day society that has bipartisan support across both sides of the aisle. The original comprehensive Everglades restoration plan was signed in 2000 um, by a Democrat president with a Republican state governor standing by his side. And since then, um, the funding that's come for this project has been supported by both sides of the aisle, by people all up and down, um, and by people all over the, the country, because it really is America's Everglades. Um, so this Comprehensive Everglades Restoration Plan initially was the outline for the series of projects that would eventually restore flows to the historic Everglades um, and control the the water coming out of Okeechobee and uh, figure out a way to get these flows back to where they needed to go. This is such an important idea because we have interrupted the flows and for multiple ways. We have uh, prevented water from uh, making it down to the Everglades. We have prevented releases from providing enough water for the Everglades. We've built roads through the historic sheet plain of the Everglades that um, provide, basically serve as a dam to prevent any water from flowing down there. So throughout SERP, 
we have this idea that we need to control the quantity, quality, timing, and distribution of water. And to do that, the Army Corps is working with the state in a 50-50 match. That's a better deal than the Army Corps and the federal government usually get from any of the other projects they're doing. Um, and that will do projects that will store water, it will treat water, it will raise up roadways so water can flow beneath them, it will improve the waterways that are there to prevent flooding outside of the floodplain. And all in all, when this project is done, this will have restored the Everglades to not their full historic range, but to at least a functioning system that will support the biodiversity and other natural ecosystems that are around there um, to something that we can be proud of. Yeah, thank you so much for explaining that. And just to clarify again, uh, when we say SERP, we're saying Comprehensive Everglades Restoration Plan, the commonly used acronym. It truly is incredible how much progress has been made um, in the past 20 plus years. So it seems like uh, restoring water quality, like you said, is an integral piece of um, SERP and one that benefits not only the Everglades, but everyone here in Florida. Uh, Katie, can you tell us a bit about the water systems we're using in the Everglades as part of this um, SERP program and how they're helping improve water quality? Yeah, of course, Denise. Uh, so Matt kind of started touching on it with the uh, quality, quantity, timing, and distribution. So that's really what we're looking at with water storage and water filtration. Um, and that those are kind of the main ways that we're trying to improve water quality as it's uh, moving away from the lake and moving throughout Florida. Uh, and so we have two big systems that we've been using to uh, try and treat the water and try and filter it. Uh, the first one is something called alum treatment, which is the use of aluminum sulfate to bind with harmful nutrients in the water to make the water quality better. Uh, and while it's very effective in doing this, um, for a lot of the harmful nutrients that we're looking at, it has uh, an 80% or above uh, success rate of bringing them out of the water. One of the downsides is that it creates a sludge um, and this is a part of the alum treatment process. Uh, unfortunately, it's pretty difficult to dispose of this sludge, um, and it's something that we're kind of trying to figure out and uh, needs to be studied a bit more in terms of um, some ways that we can do this effectively. Uh, and then on the other side, um, we have another system, uh, another way of filtering this water, uh, and that's something called a stormwater treatment area, also known as an STA. And that's essentially a constructed wetland, uh, which allows the ecosystem to still be used by wildlife and humans, uh, as it always has been and always does. Uh, and it allows us to kind of go back to this, this previous, wetland, uh, previous wetland and previous Everglades that Matt talked about, kind of going back to that history, trying to make it uh, as back, uh, reverse to that natural environment as much as we can. Um, Another manner of doing this, there are a lot of different water treatment options, but one of them is filter ponds, uh, and this can also be used in tandem with the other options, and it's another nature-based solution that allows the water to be filtered, um, and their STAs and filter ponds are also incredibly effective uh, because that's what they're meant to do. The grasses and uh, plants that are part of it are incredibly important. Um, and so here at SCCF, we obviously support action for the restoration and protection of uh, the Everglades environment, but we really support these nature-based solutions above all else, and we think that they're incredibly important. 
Yeah, I'm no kidding. It's kind of like we, we came in, changed it, and now we're like, okay, let's put it back to the way it was. Um, yeah, the, the alum water additive is really interesting. I hadn't heard of it, and the, the sludge kind of sounds um, a little disconcerting. Do you know how long that's been used to treat water? Uh, yeah, so it, alum's actually used throughout a lot of different industries, um, and it's used for dye and paper production, and um, occurs in some foods, and it's been used for uh, purifying drinking water for a while because it takes the particles out um, and allows it to be purified much in the same way that we're using it in uh, out in nature in lakes. Um, However, it's only been used in water treatment of lakes since the 1970s. So this is something that's relatively new that we're dealing with, and especially if we're adding it into our natural systems, uh, a lot more needs to be done to truly understand it and understand its long-term effects. Yeah, that's that's super interesting. Something just in me is gravitating way more toward the um, stormwater treatment areas. It just, you know, nature-based solutions is something um, we're always supporting at SCCF, like you said, Katie. Um, so if we could keep going, what nutrients specifically are we trying to get out of the water with these systems and, and why is that so important? Yeah, that's a great question. So this really gets to the heart of what we're trying to do with water quality. Um, there are two main nutrients that Matt kind of mentioned earlier. Uh, phosphorus and nitrogen are the, the big ones that we're looking at in the water uh, because these two nutrients coupled with warmer water temperatures causes something called a harmful algal bloom, also known as a HAB. And what happens is <clears throat> phosphorus and nitrogen enter the water through a lot of uh, different uh, manners. So we see this through urban sprawl and development uh, and manipulation of the land along bodies of water and throughout the watershed. Uh, we also see this through pollution entering the water and significantly we see it uh, through agriculture because the fertilizers that are used to help uh, plants grow and help them be more healthy are phosphorus and nitrogen. However, when they enter the water, this helps algal blooms. Uh, this helps the algae grow and um, makes it grow excessively and outcompete other plants that are really important for building our aquatic ecosystems. Uh, we see two types of algae, uh, and these are called micro and macro algaes. Uh, Macroalgaes are what we normally see washed up on the beach and what you can visibly see uh, over here in Sanibel and Captiva, we see a lot of sargassum. Um, and then microalgaes are uh, blue-green algae and red tide. Uh, and th these are really what we're seeing as the harmful algal blooms. Uh, blue-green algae is a freshwater algae and red tide is a saltwater algae. So that's kind of the big distinction distinction between the two. Um, and research from our SCCF labs has found that poor water quality releases from Lake Okeechobee are directly contributing to red tides on Sanibel and Captiva uh, because we are so sensitive to these impacts. And so that's why right now um, we're really monitoring the blue-green algae bloom that's beginning on Lake Okeechobee, especially as we're entering the rainy season, um, because it's a threat to us out here and it can be dangerous for our ecosystems. Um, we saw that the harmful algal blooms were fatal for wildlife back in 2018 uh, when a red tide lasted for six months and washed 425 tons of dead marine life onto the beaches. 
Um, and through a process of bioaccumulation in which toxins work their way up the food chain and smaller fish ingest uh, this toxic al algae and then uh, larger predators in ingest the fish, uh, we saw a lot of dolphins and osprey dying from the harmful algal bloom. Um, further, it impacts our economy. There were $47 million in economic losses uh, following the 2018 red tide. Um, and then finally, and pretty significantly, we're beginning to look into harmful and fatal impacts on humans. Uh, so we definitely can tell when there's a red tide that it's affecting our respiratory, um, being able to breathe, and uh, there's a lot of wheezing and coughing that people often feel with a red tide. Uh, but a study just last year actually found a correlation between blue-green algae and neurodegenerative diseases like Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, and motor neuron disease. So really trying to fight uh, what we can with these harmful algal blooms and trying not to normalize them um, occurring out here in Florida is really important. Yeah, they're um, extremely harmful, and it, it almost sounds like something out of a sci-fi movie. Um, having moved here from Ohio... Um, just one year ago, almost to the date, I, you know, was just so surprised to learn and see um, some of these harmful algal blooms impacting our waterway, um, waterways. And uh, this morning, the latest update was that over 53% or around 53% of Lake Okeechobee is covered in blue-green algae right now. And, and with that water, some of it coming to the Caloosahatchee and impacting where we are here, it is a, it is a concern. And after Hurricane Ian uh, last September, which was the third costliest weather disaster on record, um, the storm surge uh, created a red tide bloom um, or helped create it that lasted several months here. And it's just, you know, people are people are still reeling from that. So sorry for that tangent. Um, back to the Everglades, Matt. Um, would you care to explain how Everglades restoration impacts, you know, where we are here in Southwest Florida? I know I touched on it a bit, but care to elaborate? You absolutely nailed it, Denise, and Katie did a great job of laying it out. I think that it wasn't a tangent at all because we do need to look at these systems holistically and understand that they're not separate systems at all, but they are integrally connected to each other. So if we can achieve Everglades restoration, and remember we're trying to hit that goal of cleaning enough water quickly enough to be able to get it below that phosphorus threshold of 10 parts per billion and be able to send that water south. And the more water we can send south, the less water we risk taking up here in the northern estuaries. Right now that lake is functioning as a reservoir and it's being managed for flood control. So regardless of who wants water when and who doesn't want water when, at some point if that lake gets full enough, the Army Corps will open those floodgates um, to protect the cities that are south of the lake right now. Generally what that means is the Caloosahatchee floodgates and the St. Lucie floodgates go open and we get huge damaging, damaging discharges. Uh, <clears throat> And those discharges are full of the, all the nutrient-laden water that Katie talked about. And it can be full of the, the blue-green algae bloom that you touched on right now. So I think that we have this idea where we're mismanaging these ecosystems to the detriment of all the ecosystems. And when we're holding the lake this low, or the, when we're holding the lake this high, we see these massive blooms. Um, when we open the floodgates, because the lake is so high and there's a massive bloom going on, it can potentially transport that toxic algae bloom directly down our river into our estuary, and then we have to deal with the ramifications of having that toxic blue-green algae in our communities now. 
In addition, as Katie mentioned, this is a freshwater algae. So when that blue-green algae hits the salt water, the cells will actually lise and burst apart. And then that frees up all the nutrients now for new macroalgae blooms to happen in our estuary or for a red tide to feed on the, the nutrients that were transported down. Um, and that was linked to that research that Katie touched on also that we released last summer that shows that these releases from Lake Okeechobee whether they have blue-green algae in them or not, there is enough nutrients in there to have an exacerbating effect on red tide. If they do have a blue-green algae bloom that is toxic when the cells make it to the gulf and die, then the nutrients are freed up, but also that toxin is still present in the gulf. So we're still trying to understand exactly what it means when um, we treat a blue-green algae bloom, when we end up effectively kill it, where does the toxin go? But having these massive harmful algal blooms in the system is really detrimental not only to the ecosystems they're in but also the people and communities that surround them. So the closer we can get to Everglades restoration, the more clean water we can send south. Every drop of clean water we can send south is one drop of dirty water that's not going down the Caloosahatchee. If we can get to this place where SERP is done, we have enough reservoirs to store, store water, we have enough STAs to treat water, then we can hopefully see a future where the Caloosahatchee is getting the minimum flows it needs to maintain the salinity gradient of its estuaries to protect the tapegrass and oysters that live there, but not receiving these damaging flows that can spur on red tides, can transport toxic algal blooms, can give us that dark water that um, it's not nice to look at, it's not good for fishing or boating, and can spur on all these additional problems of just having too many nutrients in the water. So I think it's really important to understand that the health of the Everglades is inextricably tied to the health of the Caloosahatchee and all the northern estuaries. So we need to be all pulling together to really get the funding, get the projects done, and fix these systems. Yeah, no kidding. Um, it's just a cascading effect, and, and I'll never forget um, the 2018 Red Tide event. Um, our Marine Lab director relayed that he was uh, diving in the midst of that and, you know, just surrounded by dead fish, not any life to be seen. And, and I think a lot of our staff here are still reeling from that, although I wasn't personally here. You know, I've heard about it time and again. So, Matt, could you tell um, our listeners how SCCF is working to support improved water quality in our region? SCCF is so active in this space, and we're also so blessed to be in a community that really understands the importance of clean water. And we see that support from every level, not just the environmental groups or other conservation groups or other NGOs, but also it's shown in partnerships with like the, the Chamber of Commerce on Sanibel is really supportive of clean water because they understand that our economy is tourist-based and our economy and our ecology are so closely tied together that if we don't have clean water, we're not gonna have businesses that can function in this area either. Um, in addition to that, every level of SCCF is working towards clean water, whether that's the Marine Lab who's doing continuous testing through their recon, um, outposts or daily or weekly water testing and monthly water testing up the Caloosahatchee uh, to Sea School who's teaching kids about the importance of clean water to Coastal Watch that's getting volunteers to physically get out in the environment and get trash out of the water. 
um, or plant new mangroves or oyster reefs or some of these natural systems that help clean our water. And then our policy department is working tirelessly throughout the legislative session in Tallahassee, up uh, in D.C., uh, fighting for Everglades funding, fighting for further funding for research and monitoring and understanding how these red tide blooms happen, how these harmful algal blooms happen, and how we can really impact and mitigate future blooms, but also really fighting hard to get those nutrients out of the water now, because we're not going to solve this problem until we've stemmed the introduction of nutrients into the system. And that means that we need to make personal decisions about how we use fertilizer, where we wash our car, and what we think about what's going down the storm drain. But also on a larger scale, we need to be seriously addressing how are we going to switch over huge swaths of South Florida that are still on septic and put those on sewer so we're not leaching these uh, this pollutants directly through the limestone bedrock that is so porous it allows the free flow of nutrients directly into our groundwater and how we're going to get agriculture to put less of these products, these uh, nutrient-heavy phosphorus and nitrogen fertilizers on their lands, how they can um, enforce best management practices and voluntarily adopt some of these practices that are really going to be instrumental in fixing the environment and protecting the ecology of South Florida that will allow this state to prosper in the future. It's, yeah, really exciting everything we're doing here at SCCF and, um, you know, just educating people. Like you said, I recently learned that, you know, it's better to get your car washed at an actual car wash so that, you know, the soaps doesn't don't go down the storm drain. So just little things everyone can do. Um, I just want to give a side note that RECON um, stands for River Estuary and Coastal Observing Network um, and It is a continuous water quality testing system that um, our marine lab has, and they have real-time data. You can check it out at recon.sccf.org. So zooming out a little bit from Florida, Katie, why would you say Everglades restoration should be important even to someone, you know, in Ohio, in California? Yeah, yeah, that's definitely really significant. This is a much larger issue. Um, We already know that uh, the Everglades are incredibly important uh, to the United States as a whole. These are America's Everglades. Uh, They're an incredibly unique ecosystem. And as you mentioned earlier, we have 39 endangered and threatened species that are in this system and they require it. And um, so that's really important to protecting them. People come from all over the country to visit and to be able to see um, the Everglades, see these species. And that's really important to to preserve and restore. Uh, Even further, it is an economic driver, definitely. Um, Tourism is the number one industry in Florida. And so being able to bring people down and see the beautiful and natural wonders that we have here in Florida is really important. Um, And when we bring people down, being able to show them Uh, the quality of ecosystem that we have, making sure that our water is clear and there are luscious wetlands with so much biodiversity and um, so much wildlife uh, is really, really important. And then really seeing from a super, uh, a larger issue, um, carbon sinks. Uh, The Everglades is a carbon sink and that ensures that CO2, carbon dioxide, is taken out of the atmosphere. 
And we know that that's really a major driver in climate change. And so being able to reduce those amounts, um, encouraging the tree and plant growth uh, and being able to preserve our wetlands is really, really important. Um, and not only is it just the Everglades um, that we're preserving, but we're helping the systems that it works with. So it is also uh, the Everglades support other carbon sinks uh, like seagrass in the Florida Keys. And so all these systems really work together. And um, not only do they have a national effect, but they have an international and global effect. So it's, it's really important to restore them. Absolutely, yeah, it's it's all connected. Um, and I think too, we can just be a model, you know, for everyone in the nation with, like Matt said, SERP is, you know, one of the largest restoration projects ever undertaken, um, billions in funding uh, to the date. So to close out, um, I'd like to pose this question to the both of you. You touched on it a little bit, Matt, um, but what are some steps that everyday citizens can take to protect water quality for their communities? Yeah, that's a really great question. Uh, so fertilizer application is something uh, that's really an, a good, easy step for citizens to take. Uh, just ensuring that you're, there's common sense application, uh, the time of year uh, that fertilizer is applied, making sure it's not during the rainy season, um, and also where it's applied and that there's a buffer zone um, between bodies of water and fertilizer. Um, luckily over here in Sanibel, we have a lot of ordinances that support that and um, ensure that we are taking those steps, but a lot of places don't um, or don't have as strong of ordinances. And so that's why it's really important to go out and vote and ensure that uh, your local ordinances are really strong and that you're electing officials that support water quality initiatives like this. Um, and even when these officials are elected, holding them accountable, um, making calls, sending emails, and really showing them as a citizen, you support water quality, and that's something that's really important to you. I couldn't agree more. Staying involved in your local community is absolutely where it starts. And I think the, the first part of that, too, is really learning of, and being educated about how these systems work and how not only the choices you make are affecting these systems, but also how the choices your larger community is making is affecting these systems as well. So Katie, you mentioned the fertilizer application. I think a lot of these in individual choices are so important, but also understanding how these larger choices like supporting septic to sewer, um, buying land for conservation, putting easements on land that will um, support reducing density, recharging groundwater, and how all of these systems are interconnected and benefit not only you and your community, but the larger Florida area as well um, that we're living in. So I think you can absolutely get educated, vote, support Everglades funding, support water quality research, support harmful algal bloom uh, research and mitigation and reduction of nutrients. Um, if you're in the on the Caloosahatchee, I think a really good tool to understand the system are the Caloosahatchee condition reports that we put out weekly that show um, everything you could want to know about the lake and Caloosahatchee and the current status, whether that's uh, harmful algal blooms, lake levels, water flows. Um, we also have action alerts you can sign up for, and that way when we need to mobilize people to call their legislatures, write emails, um, we can send an email directly to your inbox and tell you our thoughts on an issue and um, hopefully spur you on to action as well. 
And then I think one of the most important things people can do is get out and enjoy the resource. It's so much easier to fight for something that you love and enjoy and appreciate how important clean water is to the Everglades that you're hiking in or fan boating in or the river that you're boating in or the beach that you're walking along and looking for shells or just playing and seeing a sunset on. Um, all of these things require having clean, clear water and all of that clean water starts with a healthy Everglades. Absolutely, and there you have it, uh, some thoughtful, achievable steps that you can take. Um, you can visit um, secf.org to sign up for those action alerts and get those Caloosahatchee conditions reports. And if you like what you hear and want to learn more, you can also follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at secf underscore swfl, which stands for Southwest Florida. Thank you both, Matt and Katie, so much again for taking the time to walk us through water quality and Everglades restoration. It was really great having you on the show. Thanks for having us. This has been great. Yeah, thank you so much.